What a privilege it is to gather and sing and think together of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Of course, uh, it's not the only weekend of the year we do that. <laughs> we celebrate Christ's resurrection week in and week out as we gather together. Let's pray. Father, we do seek to glorify Christ. We seek to adore Him this morning. We seek to submit ourselves to the resurrected uh, Lord, Father, may we, may we understand the significance of our Lord coming, living perfectly, dying on a cross, and coming back to life to accomplish redemption. Father, forgive us for taking that lightly. May this morning and every week and every conversation throughout the week with other believers remind us of the glory of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Luke 4 this morning. I heard an interview with a musician this week, a country music artist, who said we've turned the props into the play. He said the props of country music, pickup trucks, and red solo cups have taken over his genre of music. And this morning, you can fight me later on country music, but I just want to think about that phrase for a moment. We are equally in danger of turning the props of Easter into the play. Perhaps you recognize that danger and even seek to call today Resurrection Sunday to keep the focus where it ought to be. And on a day as a church where we're tempted to think, man, we need everything to go right, we need, we need the music to be perfect, we need this to go well, we need to look better than we normally do, I just want to remind us this morning that it's not about that. Easter is about a man who was publicly executed, who publicly walked out of the tomb. That's the thing, that Jesus Christ is resurrected. Easter egg hunts are fun. Family pictures are an Easter tradition in our home. That's why I'm wearing pink today. But let's not allow the props to, be, to take over the play. So this morning I thought I would bring my A game in the sermon and, and summarize in one line everything I'm going to say in the next 40 minutes. And here it is. Jesus died and then he lived. So we should listen to him. <laughs> Jesus died and then he lived. We should listen to what he says. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus' public ministry takes center stage. In the first three and a half chapters of Luke, lots of things um, were taught concerning Jesus, but most of those things were other people talking about Jesus. We had the one instance when Jesus is teaching in the temple when he was 12 that we heard from Jesus himself, and then... Um, now we enter his public ministry, and we hear more and more and more as Luke focuses pretty intensely on the teaching of Jesus. We just finished kind of a three-part prelude to uh, this public ministry that included the genealogy of Christ, it included the baptism of Christ, and it included the temptation of Christ. And so now, we, as, we, as we continue through Luke, we begin this new section here of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It's going to stretch all the way through Luke chapter 9, verse 50. And it includes Jesus' preaching. It, it includes His healing ministry. It includes Him casting out demons. And so, um, Luke 4, uh, 14 through 30 really are kind of an introduction to the teaching ministry of Jesus. Next week, we'll see his healing and casting out demons ministry. The primary theological question that Luke is seeking to drive home, that he he's, has been driving home from the beginning, is who is Jesus? We've heard a lot of other people testify to Jesus. We heard Jesus himself as a 12-year-old boy testifying that he is the Son of the Father, now Luke presses further into the teaching ministry of Jesus to answer this question, who is Christ? If you remember from our first sermon in the book of Luke, we said 
um, from Luke chapter 1. The purpose for which Luke is writing is that we might have confidence in who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So as we turn our attention to Luke 4, we see really the first kind of section in this text is the first couple of verses there, verses 14 and 15, are, are sort of a summary statement about the teaching of Jesus. Look in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus returns to Galilee here. Luke doesn't record a lot of what the Apostle John records, including Jesus going back to the area of the Jordan where John is baptizing and John sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't include a lot of the, the ministry that Jesus did down there in southern Israel. Uh, in John chapter 3, in his conversation about being born again with Nicodemus, we know that the Gospels, they complement each other. They, they fill in the gaps of one another. And so Luke's emphasis is going to be on Jesus marching from Galilee over the course of his ministry to Jerusalem, where he will die and be resurrected. And then in the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, the gospel then goes out from Jerusalem to Galilee and to Samaria and to, and to the other most parts of the world. So here, Luke begins with Jesus in Galilee. This is the area in which Jesus grew up. It's in northern Israel. Not to state the obvious, but the Sea of Galilee is in Galilee. This is where towns like Nazareth and Capernaum are. Um, one Jewish historian, Josephus, you may hear that name thrown around, he recorded that there's 240 different cities and villages and little towns in this area of Galilee. And Jesus would spend about half of his ministry there, preaching and teaching and healing. And this is... The area that we'll see in which Jesus called many of his disciples. And so he returns. He returns to the area in which he grew up. He returns, the text says, in the power of the spirits. Again, I'm saying this every week. Luke will simply not allow us to forget about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus will be empowered by the Spirit in his teaching ministry and in his healing ministry. He's led by the Spirit and acts in the power of the Spirit. And as he does this, as he's going about this region in Galilee, there's quite a stir, there's quite a buzz in the community. The report goes out about what he is saying and what he is doing. In today's lingo, they might say he's trending and the reason for this, in Luke, that he wants to really emphasize, is Jesus' teaching. He loves to emphasize and highlight the teaching of Christ. He does record healings, he does record casting out demons, but as we see, as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, we'll see over and over and over again that Luke loves to return back to the teaching of Christ. And it's this teaching ministry of Jesus that is causing a stir in the area. Jesus would regularly then teach in the synagogues as um, he began his public ministry. These were kind of local outposts where, where faithful Israelites would gather and they would hear the word and they would learn the scriptures and they would pray together and they would recite scripture together. It's hard to say when synagogues kind of became a thing. Likely they, they became a thing when the Jews were carried off into captivity and the temple could no longer serve as the center of their worship. So these little outposts started popping up where um, they could hear and learn the scriptures. These synagogues were scattered in just about every town in Galilee. When the people were gathered, again, they would read the text. Somebody would stand up to to, uh, d d I can't talk, decipher the meaning of the text, to give the meaning and the relevance of the text. And Jesus would attend these gatherings. He would take advantage of the time to share God's word and to teach the Old Testament. 
Interestingly enough, Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul walked in the footsteps of Jesus, and when he went into a new town, he would go to the synagogue and teach. And initially, we see in verse 15 that the reception of Jesus, in the beginning, it's quite positive. The text says he's being glorified by all at the end of verse 15. Early on, the people are hearing him teach. They're praising his name. They're heaping praise onto him and honor. The Gospels record over and over that when Jesus teaches, the crowd is astonished by the authority with which he teaches. And we understand that he's God in the flesh. So his teaching is authoritative. So Jesus' teaching is, is spreading, his fame is increasing, yet it's in his hometown of Nazareth that he receives the pushback. If verses 14 and 15 kind of give us the 30,000-foot overview of Jesus' teaching ministry, the next section, verses 16 through 21, zoom in and we get a glimpse then of the content of Jesus' teaching. Look in verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Again, Jesus is in the area in which he grew up. He goes to his hometown in Nazareth. Again, we don't know a lot about Jesus' childhood. We had one narrative Earlier in Luke, record a story about him as a child. We knew that he grew in, the, in wisdom and stature as a child. Um, we can imagine that the, the locals here in Nazareth knew Jesus. They saw Jesus as a child playing in the streets. They saw him helping his father with chores and work and tasks around the house. And now Jesus returns as an adult. He enters the local synagogue as he normally would. The verse says, as was his custom. And the time in the service comes where somebody's going to read the, the passage. And then they're going to sit down and they're going to explain the relevance of the passage. So the scroll of Isaiah is handed to Jesus then. You know, books were not a thing the scriptures were recorded on these scrolls, and they were kept in a chest inside the synagogue. And so Jesus turns to what we would call Isaiah 61. The verses and chapters were added later in order to help us more quickly find references. So he turns to what we know as Isaiah 61, and he does quote part of Isaiah 58, um, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the, the gathered crowd would have obviously, obviously been familiar with Isaiah 61, they would understand that, that this passage is it was looking forward when Isaiah wrote it to the coming of the Messiah. It's describing the dawning of the Messianic era, the coming of the Deliverer, the Savior. And we learn a few things about this Messiah, about the Savior from Isaiah 61. First, we learn that, that the Savior, the Messiah, which we know as those who have been studying Luke and as those who believe in Christ, we know that it's describing Jesus. But if you were just to read Isaiah 61, prior to the coming of Christ, you would learn that when the Christ, the Messiah, comes, he will be the bearer of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
He's anointed with the Spirit. Again, Luke, every week it feels like he's just reminding us, reminding us, reminding us that Christ has the Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit that worked in Mary to miraculously conceive. It was the Holy Spirit that came down and floated like a dove and rested on Jesus at his baptism. It was a Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness as he was full of the Spirit. Here he returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as readers, we know that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one that brings the Spirit. And then the next four phrases start with the word to in your English Bible. They describe the purpose for which the Messiah would come. What's he going to do? When the anointed one comes, what's he going to do? He's going to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the economic poor are obviously not automatically beneficiaries of God's saving grace. But in Scripture, they are often the first to recognize their helplessness and admit their utter reliance on God's help and care. In fact, if you look at it from the opposite end of the spectrum, there's lots of warnings in Scripture about the danger of riches. It's not sinful to have money, but it is sinful to rest and to trust in that money, and there is a temptation to rest in that instead of see your need for Christ. So the poor person here, the way Jesus is using it to instruct, characterizes the person who knows they are in need. It's the person in need who knows they are in need. Jesus has come into the world to save those who are poor before Him and they recognize it. He came to save those who see and recognize that they need a Savior. Those who would seek to buy Jesus off with money or hold out any sort of good works as payment before the Lord to earn our own righteousness, they miss Christ. They don't recognize Him when He comes, but those who hear the good news and say, I need that, that is my only hope. Christ has come into the world to proclaim good news to those who recognize their utter lack of riches before Him. He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. In the Old Covenant... Think Old Testament law, if you're just kind of learning your Bible. There were rewards for obedience. There were punishments for disobedience. Part of the covenant was that if Israel rebelled against God and they turned to idols, there would be other nations that would come and carry them off into captivity. The result of sin is exile in the Old Covenant. Therefore, Jesus says, I have come to set the captive free. He has brought liberty, freedom to the prisoner. Again, it is those who recognize that they have sinned and need release that are offered the gift of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. It's those who recognize that I've, I've broken the covenant. I've broken God's law. I'm in captivity to sin. Christ has come to proclaim liberty to the captive. He not only frees the captive, He recovers the sight of the blind. Now we know Jesus will do this literally in Luke chapter 7 and in other places. And this literal healing of the blind, I think, points forward to this full salvation that Jesus has brought. He opens blind eyes. Paul would say it, this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. When you were called then, when God called you to salvation, His call is effective. When He said, Bunny, wake up. And He called Bunny to Himself. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes 
But he regenerated your heart. And for all of us who have come to Christ, we were given eyes to see the glory of the gospel. And at that point, we gladly and freely embraced Christ. Given eyes to see. The blind are given sight. He came to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is where Jesus, now, he, he jumps to Isaiah 58, and he, he steals a line from Isaiah 58. He didn't steal it, he wrote it. But in its context, Israel is being chided, they're being condemned for going through the outward motions of spirituality. They want to fast, they want to go to the temple, they want to go through these outward motions of spirituality while at the same time perpetrating injustice towards the weak and the vulnerable in their society. They yoked the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant with an impossible burden. And those who who came into Israel or who were there and needed special assistance according to the law of God, instead of loving and serving their neighbor, they sought to use their neighbor, especially their weak neighbor, for their own gain. They oppressed the ones they were meant to care for. And that's a scary place to be because... The Bible says that God is the defender of the oppressed. Psalm 103.6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now I know that that word, oppressed, it's, it's a tr- I should have gave a trigger warning. I know that it gets abused in today's popular culture. Uh, I was called an oppressor recently by a friend of mine, I guess he's still a friend, because I hold to the Bible's teaching on sexuality and marriage, so I'm an oppressor. So I get that the word is abused today, but my, my caution to us then is let, let's not so overreact that we can't talk the way the Bible talks. We can't quote Scripture. So we want to be clear. This was Israel's sin. This is a possibility for Israel and for a people. Whereas Israel was rebuked for their failure to care for the vulnerable, the Messiah, the Savior, has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, like blindness, I think this has a literal and a spiritual dimension. He will literally deliver people from physical suffering, from illness, from demon possession, in Christ's kingdom, there is no, this is coming kingdom, there is no taking advantage of the weak. So there is a literal fulfillment. But I think these two point to the great salvation that Jesus has come to accomplish. We are delivered from the burden of sin in Christ. We are delivered from our inability to earn God's kindness and favor to those who sense their total inability, to those who sense their inability to please and earn God's righteousness, to those who feel the weight of sin, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus has come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And lastly, in terms of these two phrases, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus has come to announce that salvation is here, and it's available through Him. The context of Isaiah 61, which by and large is what Jesus is quoting, is discussing the year of Jubilee, which was a year written in God's law that every 50th year debts would be canceled, slaves would be released and set free. And Jesus is announcing the year of the Lord's favor has come. Jubilee is here. The ultimate Jubilee has come. There's freedom from sin's penalty There is cancellation of your debt of sin. Today is the day of salvation. So he he just reads this text, 
and Jesus sits down to teach, which I know we like to make fun of guys who preach from a stool, but this was cultural. He has a reputation for being a powerful, authoritative teacher, and so the audience is spellbound. They're staring at Christ, wondering, how will he explain this text? I think what Luke gives us at the end of verse 21 is really a summary of Jesus' teaching. I think Jesus took more than nine words or so to, to explain the text. But his message can be summed up in this. Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. For centuries... Whether in synagogues or the temple, this text would have been read and the teacher would have said, man, can't we look forward to this day? Can't we look forward to the coming of the Messiah? This day is coming one of these days. But when Jesus reads the text and he sits down to teach, he says, today's the day. He is here, and I am He. I am the servant of Isaiah. I am the Savior. I come proclaiming salvation, and I am the one that makes salvation possible. You see, in this text, Jesus is, yes, yes He's a prophet who is, who is proclaiming truth about God, but He's also a royal deliverer. Jesus is presenting himself as, as both prophet and king. In this quotation of Isaiah 61, and Jesus applying it to himself, he says, I not only come to proclaim good news, but I am the one that will set you free. He's more than a prophet. He is the king who sets free his people. So I wonder then how you think of yourself in relation to God. Jesus says, I've come to set the captive free. I've come to preach good news to the poor. He is the one that has proclaimed this message. He is the one that has accomplished salvation. So I wonder how you think of yourself in relation to God. I wonder if there are some here this morning that consider themselves rich and successful and moral before the Lord. God is lucky to have me in church today. You know, that's a, that's a scary place to be because this passage is clear. Only the humble, only the vulnerable, only the weak, only the helpless enter the kingdom of heaven. Only, only those who recognize their need for Christ will turn to Him and say, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. John Newton, many of you know the name, he was a captain of a slave ship in Great Britain in the mid-1700s, um, committed atrocities against others, profited off the stealing of others and the enslavement of others. And one day, this slave ship a sailor felt the weight of his sin. And he heard the gospel and he understood that the only means of forgiveness is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You may know John Newton's name. He wrote Amazing Grace. Later on, just before his death, his memory began to fail him. And some of the last recorded words we have from John Newton are this. He said, although my memory's failing... I remember these two things, that I am a very great sinner, and Jesus is a very great Savior. My memory is failing, but I remember these two things. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I think this morning, if that's your attitude, that it's a, it's a miracle to you that Christ could save someone like you, then that's a good indication that you've understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you've thrown yourself at his mercy, that you see yourself as poor and helpless and vulnerable and weak and in need of a Savior who might pay the price for your sin, that you have tasted of the grace and goodness of God. But not everyone, not everyone responds positively 
to Jesus. In fact, the crowd turns on him rather quickly when they realize the fullness of his message. So let's look at our last section here. Point number three, the response to Jesus' teaching in verses 22 through the end of the paragraph there. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But, surpassing, or but passing through their midst, he went away. Again, in verse 22, the initial response is, is positive. They're speaking well of Jesus. They were evidently impressed with his ability to handle the word and to explain the word and to teach the scriptures. They even marvel at his gracious words, that Jesus' message is one of hope and it's one of salvation. In fact, if you were to read the passage that Jesus is quoting, he, he leaves out the last line of the vengeance of God is coming. And it's not to say that's not true, the vengeance of God is coming, but Jesus is announcing with my coming, there's a way to escape the vengeance that's coming. It's, it's through me, it's through my work that I will accomplish. And so they're impressed with his words of salvation and his words of hope. It seems that the crowd was was intrigued about this new age, this dawning of the Messianic age. Their question is, I don't know that it's Jesus that's come to bring it. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're impressed with his delivery, but not with the content of his message. So they're frustrated by that. they, They begin to question that. I'm sure there were many in the synagogue that day that were turned off by the message that the poor and the weak and the vulnerable are the recipients of God's divine favor. Certainly it's the moral ones. Certainly it's the one like me that has kept God's law to the best of his ability. Who's this guy, Jesus, trying to say that I need to humble myself to receive salvation? So they begin to question Jesus asking, isn't this Joseph's son? Could Joseph and Mary, they're, they're godly, but they're pretty normal. Could they really be the parents of the Savior? The kid we watched play in the streets? He's supposed to be the servant of the book of Isaiah? So they reject that. They're not buying it. And so Jesus responds, and he keeps responding, and he keeps responding until he's pushed hard enough to reveal their heart. He responds by quoting to them a proverb, Physician, heal yourself. We might, we might translate it into t- today's lingo this way. Prove it. Prove it. If you're a doctor and you're sick all the time, are you really a doctor? Prove that you are the Messiah. We've heard, they say. We've heard what you did at Capernaum. We've heard some rumors of some miracles and some healings. Now, prove it to us. We need a sign to trust your message, Jesus. And at first, that might not seem like an unreasonable request. However, Jesus knows their heart. He knows that their rejection of him and his message and his declaration that salvation has come today is not for lack of evidence. It's, it proves the hardness of their hearts. 
The crowd gathered here is like many crowds that will be gathered in the ministry of Jesus who likewise will demand more and more and more evidence from Christ. At one point, Jesus will incredibly, miraculously feed 5,000 people. He will create food from nothing. If 5,000 people showed up for Easter Church this morning, we wouldn't be able to get all the restaurants in town to be able to provide for them. But Jesus does it with the power of his own voice. He's the creator. He can speak things into existence. You know what the crowd said the next day? They wanted more food. They wanted another meal. They found Jesus. Do you know what they said? What sign will you do for us, Jesus, that we will believe in you? It wasn't a lack of signs. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It was a hardness of heart. On another occasion, Jesus is doing signs. He's casting out demons. And you know what they said? They didn't say, you must be the Son of God. They said, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. You see, it's not a lack of evidence that leads the crowds here or anyone today to reject Jesus. It's a hard heart that can only be overcome by the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying don't ask good questions. I'm not saying don't search out answers to hard questions that you have about the Bible, but the outright rejection of the crowd and the rejection of Jesus today is the result of a hard heart, not a lack of evidence. So Jesus concludes that a prophet is, not with, uh, is without honor in his hometown. It was hard for the people gathered there to accept that the Messiah would come from their hometown, a place like Nazareth. So they wanted more evidence, they wanted more signs, when in reality they were simply rejecting Jesus. No honor for the prophet, no honor for the king, no honor for the Messiah in Nazareth. But Jesus isn't done, he just keeps pressing. He says something like this, speaking of prophets who get no honor, Think about Elijah. Think about Elisha. Let's take those one at a time. Elijah was a faithful prophet of the Lord during the reign of a wicked king named Ahab. First king says of Ahab that he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel before him. Under Ahab's rule, idolatry went crazy. His wicked wife, Jezebel, even sought to put Elijah to death. And in this conversation, following this death threat and Elijah fleeing, Israel is in such a sad state that the prophet says to God, I feel like I'm the only faithful Israelite in the whole area, in the land. There was more than just Elijah, but not many. And because of Israel's unfaithfulness, again, they'd broken the covenant, and so they bear the covenant curses for for disobedience to the covenant. There was a severe drought and famine in the land. And certainly during this time, there's many Israelite widows who were in need of extra care. They struggled under these conditions. Yet Elijah was not sent to anyone who is an Israelite. He was sent to a Gentile widow. In Zarephath, the land, ironically, the region from which the wicked queen Jezebel came from. The point is the Israelites were not the recipients of the blessings that would come through God's prophet. But there was a faithful Gentile widow down in Zarephath who humbled herself. And through God's prophet, God provided bread for her. God provided oil for her. God even raised her son from the dead. The insiders. Elijah was sent to Israel to be a prophet of Israel. The insiders, the ones who should have heard the message, they they missed it. And so the recipients of God's grace became a Gentile widow. The prophet brings the the message of God. The prophet symbolizes the blessing of God, and the blessing left and went to a widow. 
You can imagine the, the, the temperature of the room rising. You can imagine the anger and the tension building. But again, Jesus just keeps pressing, keeps pushing. So let's, let's push into the second illustration. Then we'll sum up what, a, what Jesus is getting at. His second illustration is Elisha. Elisha followed in Elijah's footsteps. We are, we've been blessed with Jeff's teaching through First and Second Kings, so some of us are familiar with these stories. There were many in Israel who had leprosy during the ministry of Elisha, but the only one who was cleansed was a man named Naaman. Now, why would this be a provocative story for Jesus to tell? Because Naaman is a Syrian commander who has leprosy. That's like three strikes against him. A leper would be unclean according to Old Testament law. He's a Gentile and he's a commander in the army. He's a Syrian general. And it's the one who should be the outcast, who becomes the recipient of God's cleansing, who becomes the recipient of God's blessing. When Jeff walked through this passage, I think he did an excellent job of, of contrasting Gehazi, Elisha's servant, who's supposed to be faithful. He's the one that's full of greed, and he's the one that's full of unbelief. And Naaman is the one who believes the prophet, obeys the prophet, and then seeks to want to please God even after his cleansing. So Jesus' point becomes clear by now. Salvation has come in the person of Jesus. How the crowd responds to Jesus will determine their destiny, will determine whether they receive the saving benefits of God's grace. If they will be like Naaman, if they will be like the Gentile widow, they can receive the grace of God in Christ. So you can see why this would be so offensive to Israelites who consider themselves faithful to God and kind of automatic qualifiers for the blessing of God. Jesus is saying to the crowd, you are unbelieving Israel. You need to become like the leper. You need to become like the widow. You need to recognize your helplessness and trust in the Lord that He can forgive you. If they, would, if they would humble themselves and turn to Christ, they might have this forgiveness, this salvation. But if they reject Christ, as they are in the process of doing, even as this text develops, then they become bystanders as God's salvation goes to the weak, to the humble. The diseased and outcasts of society become the recipients of God's divine grace because they recognize their helplessness, they recognize their weakness, and they're open to God's miraculous intervention on their behalf. Further, as we've said, Jesus is the prophet who proclaims this, but he's also the one who accomplishes it. For us, He's saying, I am the greater Elijah. This is another reason why this is so offensive to those people. Elijah was highly esteemed. Jesus is saying he's, he's greater than Elijah because Elijah proclaimed some things. Elijah prayed to God and was able to raise somebody from the dead. But I'm actually the one who does it. I'm the one who has come to set you free. I am greater than Elijah. I'm greater than Elisha. That's, that's an offensive message. Remember, John the Baptist is said to be the comparable Elijah, the Elijah-like prophet, yet Jesus is greater than John the Baptist because he has come into the world not just to proclaim good news but to accomplish it. He's come to save sinners from the consequences and penalty of sin. He will do it. The question is that Jesus is poking and prodding for is, Will they receive him or will they reject him? The truth is, the same question we all face this morning, the truth everyone in this room must decide, will you grow frustrated when, when God's call becomes hard and he calls you to humble yourself and turn to him? 
Will you humble yourself and find forgiveness in Christ? Or will you, like Naaman and the widow, recognize your need for a Savior and run to Christ, confess your sin, trust in His death and resurrection on your behalf? Many of you have trusted in Christ. The crowd here, though, doesn't miss Jesus' point. They decide they don't need help for the helpless. They aren't like the Syrian lepers. They aren't like the widow. And at this point, they're in a frenzy. Their wrath has been stirred up. They are absolutely furious. They aren't content with Jesus just leaving. Go somewhere else. They want him dead. So the passage wraps up with them driving Jesus out of town. They bring him to the edge of a steep hill in which they intend to throw him off a cliff and see him killed. But he slips away, unharmed. It's not his time. No one takes Jesus' life. He lays it down of his own accord when he wants, how he wants, to whom he wants. So what do we learn from this crowd's reaction? Well, we can learn this. They loved Jesus. They loved Jesus' teaching until he called them to admit their sinfulness and trust in God's grace alone for salvation. You see, it's really easy, and we're, we, we can be in danger of this. It's easy to love the Jesus of our own making. It's easy to love the Jesus that we create in our own image. I like this. I don't like this. So I think I'll just kind of focus on this, and I will reject this. Neil and I and and maybe uh, Blaine were talking about this um, at Potluck a few weeks ago. If we just pick and choose what we want to believe, we only believe ourselves. It's not faith in Christ That's faith in ourselves to decide what I want Jesus to be like. The truth is we don't get to treat Jesus this way. We don't get to say, well, I like this version of Jesus, but not this version of Jesus. I like the Jesus made in my own image. So we reject the true Jesus in favor of the one that we've erected in our own hearts. One of my favorite quotes that I've, I say often. It's from Ray Ortland. He says, Christ is too big to fit into the margins of your life. Christ is too complete to be divided up into little parts so you can pick and choose what you want. God will not supplement you, but he longs to save you. So I think, I think the task for whether I'm, I'm trusting in the true biblical Christ is, what's my response to Jesus when he says hard things? When he calls me to lay down my life? When he calls me to pluck out my eye? When he calls me to take up my cross? What is my response to Christ? These hard sayings of Jesus tend to reveal our hearts towards Jesus. He's too big to fit in the margins. He's too complete to be divided up into little parts so that we can pick and choose. He will not supplement you, but he longs to save you. So then if Jesus didn't come to supplement me, if Jesus didn't come to compliment me, if Jesus didn't come to fulfill my dreams, then why should I follow Jesus? Or if you've been following Christ for some time now, we might ask, Why should I keep pursuing Christ faithfully? Why should I keep following Him? I think if we were to zoom out and take Luke as a whole, we'd see at least these two answers. One at the beginning of the book and one at the end of the book. Why should I keep pursuing Christ? First, we follow Jesus because of who He is. That's been the primary focus of Luke to this point, and it will be continue all the way through chapter 9, verse 50, as he ministers in Galilee, We follow Christ because He's not just a guru. He's not just a wise teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the only begotten, eternal Son of the Father who has taken on flesh. And as God, He possesses all the character and all the attributes of God. He is holy. 
He is righteous. He is just. He is sovereign. He is kind. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. We serve Christ because of who He is. We serve Christ because He is God and because He is good. The second reason we should continue to pursue Christ, even though He demands our all, He demands us to take up our cross. The second reason Luke gives us at the end of the book, and it's where we started the sermon, we should follow Jesus because He died on the cross for our sins and was brought back to life. He took the penalty of our rebellion. He was laid in a tomb that was sealed with a stone and guarded by Roman soldiers. And he got up. He walked out of there victorious over sin, death, Satan, and hell. We should follow Jesus because he lives. We have a living hope, Peter says, because we serve a living Savior. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We've wasted our time this morning. If Jesus' body still in the grave, the penalty of sin won. He never conquered it. He never defeated it. We are still in our sins. We might as well ask Axel if we can get Netflix up here for Bible Hour. If Jesus never rose from the grave. The penalty of sin is death, and if Jesus is still dead, then sin won. But Paul doesn't stop there in 1 Corinthians 15. He doesn't leave us hanging and saying, well, it may or may not be true. You better decide. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. When the ladies showed up on Sunday morning, they thought they would anoint the dead body of Jesus. And on their arrival, there is no body. And the angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And then I just, I love the angels. Like, don't you remember he told you that? Christ is risen. He has accomplished the mission for which he came. He demonstrates himself to be the sovereign redeemer. Not only the proclaimer of the good news, but the victorious king who accomplished it. The very savior of the sinner, the humble, the weak, the poor, and the repentant. And we can bank our eternity on that because Christ has risen. Let's pray. Father, may we humble ourselves this morning and recognize our deep need. Lord, thank you for the resurrection of Christ. May we continue to bank our hope in that. May we continue to see ourselves as utterly bankrupt morally in need of of your work. Father, apart from your justifying grace, your forgiveness that you've granted us in Christ through the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be lost. We would be dead in sin. And so, Father, we rejoice this morning. May we faithfully continue to pursue Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.